Well, if you've been with us for a while, we're moving through uh, the letter of 1 Peter. So turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we come to a passage that challenges us to look into our hearts and to see where our hope truly lies. The Bible is clear that the call to follow Christ is not always filled with comfort and ease and physical prosperity in this life. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in John 16, 33, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Church history testifies to this tribulation over and over again. Listen to the story of a man named Polycarp who lived from A.D. 69 to A.D. 156, shortly after this letter was written. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he was the Bishop of Smyrna. And at the age of 86, he discovered that Roman officials were coming to arrest him. His friends pleaded with him to run and flee the persecution. But he received some kind of vision from the Lord that led him to believe he must be burned alive. Did you hear that? He knew ahead of time what was coming. And he didn't run. While he was on trial, Polycarp was promised release if he would blaspheme Christ, to which he responded, 86 years I have served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul threatened to feed him to wild beasts, he replied, it is well for me to be speedily released from this life of misery. Finally, the ruler threatened to burn him alive. Polycarp said, I fear not the fire that burns for a moment. You do not know that which burns forever and ever. What caused Polycarp to have such confidence and lack of fear in the face of this suffering? What caused him to have such peace in the midst of this when he knew it was coming? I believe our passage today reveals truths that Polycarp and other Christians throughout history have understood about suffering for the sake of the gospel. And it challenges us to bury these truths deep in our hearts so that we might respond in a similar way should moments of suffering come to us. Today we're looking at 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Let's read these together. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you 
yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now before we begin to unpack these verses, let's do a little brief recap of where we've been to set them into context. If you remember at the beginning of 1 Peter, Peter is speaking to Christians who have been exiled. They've been dispersed from their home countries. And if you remember in verse 6 of chapter 1, he, he says he knows they are grieved by various trials. Then when we start in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 3, 7, we see Peter calling them and us to place our hope fully in the return of Jesus Christ. And that will cause us to fight sin and it will cause us to live in certain ways under the authorities over us, even while being slandered and reviled to display the glory of God. And if you remember last week, we saw that this specifically means not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Because, as Peter says, to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And in verse 12, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. This is where we've been. This is the contest. This is the setting in which these verses find themselves. So with those in mind, let's start to unpack this. Peter begins first with a firm truth in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? You see, he's calling attention to his statement in the previous verse, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and to all the good that he's been telling us to do up until this point. And he's giving the logical and the reasonable conclusion. Who can harm you if you are pursuing these things and the Lord is caring for you? Now, I hope you're asking yourself, how are we to understand this in light of knowing that these Christians were grieved by trials and that they were being slandered and reviled? Those things are harmful, aren't they? I think there's two ways that we can and should understand this. The first is to say that this is a statement that is generally true, but not necessarily true all of the time. It's similar to how we should read the Proverbs. Generally speaking, people will not seek to do you harm if you're pursuing things that are good. Right? Think about it this way. If you are really seeking to serve your employer and to do good at work and to come under their authority, if you are really seeking to obey the laws here in the UAE and to honor the rulers, generally speaking, they're gonna find, you're gonna find favor with them, right? If you're in a marriage and as a wife, you're generally trying, purposely trying to come under the, God's rules, and to come under the authority of your husband the way that God says to. And if you're a husband and you're generally trying to honor your wife, generally speaking, you'll find favor with your spouse. 
If you're reviled and you're spoken against and you're slandered and you remain humble and you don't say anything in return, most of the time that is going to subside and you're going to find favor with your assailant. So that's one way we can see this as a general truth, but not always true. The second way is to read it in light of the hope we have of future glory. To say, ultimately, no one can fully harm us because we are safe and secure in Christ and will be with God forever. That every tear will be wiped away. That every sorrow will cease. And I think we can take the truth to mean both things. I think it means, generally speaking, you won't find harm if you're zealous for what is good. But I also think it means... No one in this life can ultimately harm you, Christian. And both lead us into the second half of this truth in verse 14. Notice the but at the beginning, showing this is a contrast. But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Oh, church, do you see this truth? You can be passionate in pursuing what is good because you know that it typically brings peace with others. No one can ultimately harm you. And even if you suffer, you will be blessed. What a freeing truth in our lives. Do you see how that just frees us to live for God's glory? Now it's helpful to point out the qualifiers in these verses. Because Peter qualifies this statement two times. First, he says we should be living in a way that we're zealous for what is good. We are passionately pursuing, obeying the commands that we've seen in this letter. Second, he says that our suffering is for righteousness' sake. It's not the result of poor decisions or sinful responses. It's the result of living fully to bring glory to God. It's the result of the gospel. I think we should also clarify what Peter means by blessed. You see, in faithful Bible study, we want want to understand words that we see according to the meaning that the author intended. If we were to take the word blessed by itself, and I were to write it on a whiteboard, we could probably come up with five, six, ten different things that we would mean by the word blessed. But we want to know what Peter means. Because that's what's going to strengthen our faith. So we need to do a little bit more digging. The first thing to notice is this isn't the same word that he used in the previous section about obtaining a blessing. It's a different Greek word. And this is a word that holds a connection to happiness. Sometimes it can be faithful to translate it happy in the fullest sense of the term. We find the same word at the beginning of each beatitude in Matthew 5. Blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. Happy is the man who is poor in spirit. Okay, so how are we blessed or happy in suffering? Seems hard to be happy in suffering. To answer that, we want to see if Peter uses this word again in his letter, providing us with an explanation. On your own, you can typically do this with a concordance 
Um, and you can just look through and see if the word is used. You could also just read the letter over and over and you'll probably see it. Peter uses this word one other time in 1 Peter 4, 14. Turn there and look at what he says with me. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Sounds a whole lot like our verses, doesn't it? Pay attention to what he writes next. Because, this is the reason why, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's the why and the how we are blessed in suffering for the sake of the gospel. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Now what does that mean? It means you're happy because you know you're in Christ. It means you're happy because you know you're loved by God. Who else would we want to be loved by but God? It means you know you're sealed with the Spirit. It means you know you're bound for glory forever. And it also means that you receive a sense of the presence of God now and the beauty of Christ here. Do you remember what Peter said in chapter one, verse eight? He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Oh church, if I could encourage you to set any truth firmly on your heart, it's this one. If suffering comes upon you for the sake of the gospel, you will be happiest. These verses show us that suffering can be for our good. So let me ask you, do you believe this to be true? Maybe you're trying to live for God in a hostile work environment. Maybe you're trying to submit to your employer's desire and you're suffering for it. Maybe family life is difficult for you and you're trying to honor God in that. Or you're being slandered by others because of what you believe. Do you believe that suffering will lead to being blessed and truly happiest? You see, this is the truth that Peter lays down to lead into the commands he's gonna give for our hearts. So we need to know this truth. Now let's look at the commands then. And the first two are found at the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't have any fear of those who are causing your suffering. Those who are slandering and reviling you, Peter is saying. In fact, don't even, be, don't even be troubled by them. The word for troubled signifies a stirring up or being disturbed, an uneasiness. And the language for both signifies that this is established prior to any interaction. In other words, plan ahead of time to have no fear in suffering. Start now. Plan to have no fear. Now notice the beginning of verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I'm sure those in my home group are starting to pick this up. Did you notice the word but? 
It's another contrast. Do you see what he's doing? He's contrasting fear with honor in Christ. That's the contrast he's making. This shows that honoring Christ the Lord as holy is in contrast to fearing those who can cause our suffering. In other words, if you have no fear of those who can cause your suffering, you're honoring Christ the Lord as holy. Or if you have fear, you're not honoring Christ the Lord as holy. What's fascinating here is that Peter is alluding to Isaiah 8, 12 through 13. Listen to what it says. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Isaiah spoke these words to King Ahaz, the king of Judah, right before the impending invasion of the Assyrians. He says, don't fear them. Fear the Lord. Because fearing man will cause us to do things that don't honor the Lord. So what does this mean then, to honor Christ the Lord as holy? What does that mean? Well, first, when we see the connection to Isaiah, part of it means that we honor Jesus as Lord, that we confess him as the God of the universe. He's the same Lord that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 8. But we're also to honor him in a specific way, as holy. Holy means to set apart or to sanctify. It's the same word used at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, which says, hallowed be your name. So what does it mean to set Christ apart as Lord? I think we can figure that out if we look at verses 15 through 16. Notice how Peter continues. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, so pause. Let's connect this in our minds to honoring Christ as holy. Peter is saying, to honor Christ as holy, we need to always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have. In other words, we honor Christ as holy when we are prepared to tell others about the hope we have in him during suffering. Now keep going with me at the end of verse 15. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter is qualifying the way that we give that defense. It must be in gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. We don't share our hope with others in pride or arrogance. That doesn't honor Christ. We don't share it in anger or argumentation. That doesn't honor Christ. We share it in meekness, in respect, having a good conscience. We share it confidently knowing that our lives display that we believe it. Confidently knowing that we do believe it, that we do have hope. We also see that doing this will put those who revile our good behavior to shame. 
What does it mean to put them to shame? Well, they're put to shame first when Christ returns and they have not believed in him. Oh, if you're here and you do not know Christ, that is a dreadful day. He will be honored as holy in that day. Second, I think it means that they're put to shame because they inevitably say, I don't have hope like that. If I was suffering like that, I would crumble. I would leave. I would escape. I want that hope. Can you tell me about it? See what Peter's saying? That shame can turn them to glorify God. Listen to the words of someone who chronicled Polycarp's death. He said it was not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. And that Polycarp was even spoken of by the heathen in every place. Oh, church, do you see what it means to honor Christ as holy? It means we're setting Christ apart as infinitely valuable. He's better than life. He's better than comfort. He's better than riches. He's better than anything. It means we treasure Christ so much that any kind of torture becomes freeing for us. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It means showing that we are truly happiest in Christ no matter where we are in life. I was talking to Holly last night and I was reminded of the story of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. You may know this. They're thrown into jail for essentially doing nothing, ridiculed, beaten. And the scriptures tell us that they were at such a peace that they were singing hymns to God all night long in the jail cell. Not only that, but Christ was so valuable to them that when the doors shook open, they didn't leave. They stayed. They didn't run. And they showed the jailer in that moment where their hope was really found. Because he turned and he said, what must I do to be saved? You see, the way we suffer honors Christ the Lord as holy because it honors him as more valuable. But I think there's a little bit more that we can add to our understanding of what it means to honor Christ as holy in our hearts. And this brings us to our final point which is probably the most striking portion of this, these verses. Suffering and the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means that God is on the throne. It means that he is in control of everything that happens in this world. And nothing happens that he is not aware of, that he did not allow, or that he did not cause. Peter adds a very unique understanding of suffering in verse 17 that we have to wrestle with. Pay attention to his wording. For, it means because. This is why he's able to say what he said before. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Better means it's more profitable, it's superior, it's advantageous to suffer for doing good. Why? How? This is where the if statement becomes vitally important to understand. Did you see what he said? He said, if that should be God's will. Listen to that again. If that should be God's will. Do you see what's being said here, church? If you are suffering for the sake of the gospel, it is God's will that you are suffering. We have to wrestle with that. That's what Peter's saying. And just in case we're curious about whether that's true, let's have a quick Greek lesson of what he's doing in the language. There are two words in the Greek language that signify someone's will. One is thelo, which means not only willing something, but pressing that thing that you will into action. The other is bulomai, which means deciding or willing something, but not necessarily pressing on to execute that decision. Let's take a guess at which one Peter uses in this section. Thelo. That God wills this and he presses it into action. Not only that, but he actually compounds it by using the same word in another way. That's thelema. And that word denotes that it's God's good pleasure to do something. Wow. Take that in for a moment. It may be God's good pleasure to decide and to press into action our suffering. This is a profound statement, and we have to ask, how can that be the case? How can it be God's good pleasure for me to suffer? Doesn't he love me? Oh, yes. He loves you more than you could ever love yourself. And I think just in this passage, we can see three reasons alone that it might be God's good pleasure for us to suffer. First, look back at verse 14. Do you remember what he said? He said, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, what? You will be blessed. You will be happy. We'll be happy because the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon us. So that may be one reason. It's God's good pleasure that you would suffer. Second, look at verses 15 through 16. There we see that God provides us with an opportunity to know and to share our hope, bringing glory to God and more joy to our hearts. If anyone asks of you, people will ask. If you are suffering well, people will ask. They will want to know how you're able to bear under the weight of that. So it may be God's good pleasure to have you suffer so that people will be able to see how much you hope in him and turn and glorify him. And can I just tell you that when people turn and glorify God, it brings you more joy. 
There are two passages in the Bible that guide my ministry. The first one is in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, make it my, or make my joy complete. And then he commands the church to do something. So he's saying, I want my joy to be complete, so you come along with me. John essentially says the same thing in 1 John 1. He says, make my joy complete. There is something ingrained in the way God has grafted us that we experience more joy as we see others experience more joy in Christ. This is why if you're not doing anything for the sake of Christ and you're wondering why you're not having joy, part of it is because you're not experiencing the joy that comes from seeing others join you in glorifying him. So that may be a reason why it's God's good pleasure that you would suffer. And the third reason, I think, is found in verses 14 through 15. Because we see that it removes our anxiety and suffering and it allows us to, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Because we can fully proclaim that he is sovereign over everything, even our suffering. There is peace knowing that God is in control even if you're suffering. And there is turmoil if you don't know that. F.B. Meyer puts it this way. He says, the one thing for all of us to be really anxious about is to enshrine Jesus Christ in our hearts as Lord. That's the only thing we should fear. Do you believe that Christ is Lord over all? Do you believe that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him? Do you believe it when he tells you to go to the ends of the earth and he says, and lo, I will be with you always? Do you believe Romans 8.28 that says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. All things for your good. Do you live and do you speak like this is true? If you don't, let me encourage you, go back, read. See if I'm right. Read some other passages. Read Romans 8. Can it be true? And then notice one other thing from our text. Notice the beginning of verse 18. And we're going to cover this next week, and we split it up into two sections because there's so much here. But notice how it begins. Four. Okay, so our good Bible study students that we're raising up now, right? What do we know that means? Because it's a reason. So really, this, this should be connected. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, This is the reason why Peter can confidently say that if it's God's will for you to suffer, it's for your good. Because it was God's will that Christ suffered. That dreadful day 2,000 years ago did not happen outside of God's sovereignty. It happened according to his sovereignty. Galatians tells us at the right time, God sent his son. Acts 4 tells us that everything happened according to the predetermined plan of God. 
Jesus was perfect. He was the sinless Lamb of God. He was God in the flesh who suffered to bring us to God. Who is more zealous for what is good than Jesus? Yet he suffered according to the will of God so that we might be brought to God. And that's what we're gonna look at in a couple weeks after Easter. For now, we just wanna notice that this is the proof. This is the proof that Peter gives that suffering could be for our good. So beloved, have no fear of suffering, but honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. I think everyone in this room is in one of four places in response to this passage. First is those who do not know the love of grace and the grace of God. You haven't felt how much he loves you yet. You're not trusting in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to wash away your sin and to bring you into fellowship with God. I pray, I pray the truth of verse 18 becomes clear as day on your minds right now. Jesus Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You can be brought to God this morning. You can be in fellowship with God. So I pray for you to believe that. The second place that some of us could be in is that we might not be zealous for what is good. And we might not be honoring Christ as holy at all. This is the most dangerous place to be. Maybe you're willing to affirm some truth about Christ, but you're not willing to live for him. That is dangerous because you may not believe at all. Because if Christ is real, he's valuable. If he's real, he's a treasure. Saints throughout history have proclaimed that. Paul proclaimed that. Confess your unbelief and turn in your heart to honor Christ as holy. That's the second place we may be in. Third, Maybe you're here and you're, you really are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you're reviled for your belief. Or you're afraid because you know what would happen if some people found out. Maybe you're tempted to believe that this suffering can't be for your good. Can I just encourage you to hear this passage sing to your heart this morning? Have no fear. Honor Christ, the Lord is holy. You will be blessed. Know that it may be God's good and gracious pleasure for you to suffer. Paul calls this in Philippians 3, fellowship with Christ's suffering. There's a unique way that we fellowship with Christ when we suffer for the sake of his name. The fourth place 
is most likely where most of us are at. That's those who desire to honor Christ and needing to decide beforehand if we will be troubled if suffering ever comes. Are you prepared to make a defense if tomorrow suffering comes for the sake of Christ? Are you prepared to make a defense if you go into work and you're reviled because someone finds out you believe? Maybe you're tempted to believe false teaching out there that says that if you follow Christ, you'll always be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in this life. Maybe you're tempted to fall into the trap of thinking that the only reason I would suffer is if I'm in sin. Deny those false claims and anchor your hearts now in the truth of God's word because suffering could come tomorrow for the sake of the gospel. It could come to all of us in the next hour for the sake of the gospel. And Peter tells us, if it does, it'll be by God's will for our good. Set your hope fully on Christ. The Lord is holy. Prepare now to believe these truths. Strive to believe the promise of Jesus in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's be a people at Grace Church with a steady anchor and a firm hope in the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's be a people that display the value of Christ in our suffering. Please join me in standing as I pray this over us. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. God, we confess that there are many times that we fear man, that we don't honor you by the way we live and speak. God, we ask that you would show us your glory through your word proclaimed. Show us that you are seated on the throne, high and exalted. Show us that you are ruling over everything that happens. Show us that you are causing all things to work together for our good. Show us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. For you are great and you are worthy to be praised. Delight our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen.